church family, will you go with me to the throne of grace and prayer? Pray with me. Almighty God, we come before you this morning, the one who has all power and might and justice in his hand. And Father, we ask for your work to be evident, for your favor to be abundant, especially in our church this morning, O oh God. We pray for this church of believers gathered here today. Father, unless you build the house, its builders labor in vain. We need your work in us to grow. Father, in light of that, we do pray for this evening's members meeting. We pray that you would unify our body together. Father, we pray on behalf of the men whom we are voting on as potential deacons. Father, we pray for Tony Boutwell and Kevin Rummel. Father, we pray for Chris Chandler as he is serving another term. Father, we pray for Carl Nelson and Craig Douglas who serve now. Lord, protect these men. Guard their character. Guard their love for you. May they be examples to us of men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, as your word teaches. Father, we do pray also for members in our body. We pray that our body would grow together in love. We think of Ricardo and Liliani Cortada. We thank you for the Cortadas and their faithfulness serving in our Spanish ministry. We thank you for the gift of life of their son Noah, who will soon be born. We pray that Noah's birth would be smooth and healthy. Father, we pray that Noah would be one who is numbered in your kingdom, that he would come to faith in Christ. Father, we pray that our church would love Ricardo and Liliani well, that, that we would be faithful to support them as parents as they raise their son in the grace of Christ. Father, we think not only of our church, but of others besides our own. We pray for our sister church in Cordoba, Argentina this morning, the church of the Absor family, Iglesia Bautista Biblica Criser. We ask that as Pastor Carlos preaches this morning on Acts 16, that he would be faithful to your word today, O oh God. Father, we pray that that church would be built up in grace, that they would be faithful to grow as a body together, that they would represent Christ well as his body. Father, may there be more churches such as theirs across Argentina, Father, we pray for Eric and Danica Abasor as they visit with us. Lord, would you give favor to their work and their ministry? Would you protect them? Would you keep them in Christ? Would you grow them, O oh God? Would you give them fruitful ministry here in the States and refresh their hearts as they prepare to return to Argentina? Lord, we, we turn to your word ourselves. And we want to grow. Father, open our eyes to understand clearly what your word is saying. Uh, speak to our hearts, O oh God. Father, use your words, use your word uh, through my fallible words. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be present. We pray that you would show us Jesus Christ through this text. 
praise in his name. Amen. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God with sinners reconciled. A year ago, we began our study in the book of Luke, and we looked at the passage that that Christmas hymn is based off of. Angels were announcing the birth of Christ. They were singing, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, among whom those with he is pleased. So fitting that we celebrate this time of year, peace, during the Christmas season. I mean, you think about it, we, we sing Christmas carols about peace. We hang peace ornaments on our trees and our homes. We even display the word in giant letters in our front yards. Uh, and yet, in the world today, uh, you may wonder if peace on earth really has come. But just look at the news. You'll, you'll see no shortage of, of evidence for questioning whether peace is actually here. The conflict, uh, civil war tearing apart Myanmar right now. Conflict in Sudan. Ukraine uh, in war. Travesties in, in Israel and, and Palestine. But honestly, we don't even need to look globally to notice the lack of, of peace on our earth, do we? You can look no further than your own home. Behind those giant letters in your front yards, how many of us are estranged from the relatives that we love so dearly? Or how many of us regularly experience armed conflict as we use our tongues for artillery fire against those that we love the, the dearest in our own homes? Friends, if peace on earth is to be understood, it must be understood as the angels declared it. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. You see, this picture of peace that Christ brings, well, it's offered to all, but only few will experience it. The few that will find that peace will find it on a pathway that first must walk through dealing with the mountain of sin in front of us. This is exactly what we see in our text today. Jesus Christ will bring eternal peace through a path that first does not include peace. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 12. We're just studying through the book of Luke together as a church, taking each passage as a at a time. This week we've come to Luke 12. We're going to be beginning in verse 49. I warn you, our passage is a heavy one today. It's meant to help us understand how to live in light of the judgment that our sin deserves. Now, if you're here today as a visitor, maybe this is just your first or second time that you've just wandered into a church, it's Christmas time, great time to come to church, well, this is going to be a heavy passage for you. I honestly respect you for being here. And I respect you, especially for listening genuinely to what the Bible has to say, what Jesus has to say. You see, many people in our world would rather not have hard conversations. But Jesus isn't like most people. He has many hard conversations. Uh, Jesus is the kind of good doctor 
that admits that the cancer needs to be operated on. Or he's the good kind of judge who sees evil atrocities and doesn't just brush them off. Or he's the good kind of fire marshal who comes to your house and tells you there's a fire, forest fire right behind your house that you need to evacuate. So if you're here today and you're a skeptic or a doubter or a, a, a visitor, you need to notice that the hardest parts about Christianity are spoken by Jesus himself. If you listen openly to what Jesus says about the reality of our world, you'll find that his words do indeed sting, but they sting for our good. So you'll see there in our passage that Carl just read, right, the text today begins in verse 49 with this just incredibly strong statement. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And this fire, it's a picture of the judgment that must come before there can be peace. Jesus is going to advise us how to live in light of this judgment that our sin deserves. That's uh, what this group of texts will be answered. We're going to just see a lesson from each of them, and each of them answering the question, how do we live in light of the judgment that our sin deserves? Jesus gives us five truths. Number one, expect division. Number one, expect division. How do we live in light of this judgment? Expect that as Jesus does his exposing work of exposing sin in our lives, that this will bring division here in this fallen world. Look at verses 51 through 53. Jesus says this. He says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Sin divides. And if Jesus' ministry is exposing sin then his exposing sin of sin will create division. Now, some will hear Jesus' message of repentance, and they'll repent. They'll follow Jesus Christ. But some will hear of Jesus' message and be offended. They'll refuse to follow. It's like that evacuation order that comes for the forest fire right behind your home. Well, some will hear it, and they'll believe they'll leave the home. Some will hear it and refuse. They'll choose to stay, think that they can make it. Jesus is saying these differing responses will divide even families, even the closest of ties. This is because when sin deceives us, when it's exposed, many will stay in denial. They'll still be deceived by their sin. Jesus says, don't be surprised. Sin is that bad. Sin is that deceptive. Expect division from this work that I'm doing. Not all will hear it. I'm drawn to remember Mark chapter 3, where Jesus tells us his own family even rejected him, saying that he was out of his mind when he was ministering. 
So Jesus says, expect division. First point, and as I, I think about our church, I'm just immediately drawn to think of you as I read this passage. I know that many of you, if not all of you, have experienced the pain of seeing someone dear and precious to you be distanced because they have not come to faith in Christ. Now, you could try to deal with that pain by acting like that, that distance isn't that significant. But Jesus is saying it is. Even as I was studying this passage, I just fingered through our directory, of our, our church directory, and I honestly couldn't find a page where I didn't know of someone with either a child or, or a parent or a sibling or even a spouse who is distanced because they do not know Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving and Christmas can be especially painful times of year because of this very fact. We gather, we see those we love dearly, and we struggle to talk to them about the gospel. So dear family, don't grow weary. Keep pursuing those you love with the gospel. Jesus has saved you. He can save others. And as you see lines being drawn around the eternal realities that Jesus Christ brings, know that Jesus said to expect this. Your following of Jesus Christ, even at, at the cost of division, it, well, it displays the, the precious worth of Jesus Christ that's even greater than those that are closest to you. If you want, in fact, to, to meditate on that idea further, you could uh, just jot down Matthew 10, 37. It's the, the parallel passage to this verse, and it, it, it's where Jesus goes into that comparative worth being displayed by the divisions he brings when we love him even more than we love those that are closest to us in this world. Not only should we expect division, Jesus teaches a second way to live in light of the judgment our sin deserves. Look at number two. Acknowledge the times. Listen to the parable that Jesus uses here to really raise our awareness to what's happening with his ministry. Verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. So it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So the, the crowds were excellent weathermen. If a, if a cr cloud was to be rising over the Mediterranean Sea to their west, it would bring up moist air and a rain shower would come. It would come over the hills of Palestine. It was simple and obvious. They knew that a cloud in the west meant rain was coming. Or when a wind blew from the south, they knew that the Sinai desert was below them. So a wind in that direction coming up would mean that there's scorching heat coming on their land. And they'd easily be able to predict rightly. The signs of the weather were obvious, but there is a different type of heat that they failed to see coming. Jesus says there's an absence of consistency in what they see. They're hypocrites. They can see the signs that are in the sky, 
but they can't see the, the present event happening right in front of them. All the work that Jesus the Messiah uh, was doing in their midst, the signs that he was giving, the, the miracles and the teaching that he was offering as the Messiah, all of that should have been plenty, should have been enough. But because of that blinding and confusing nature of sin that I just spoke about a minute ago, they couldn't see the, the signs of the present time. You know, there's, there's so many parallels uh, to us today. We can uh, pride ourselves on forecasting so much. We forecast the stock market or weather patterns. We forecast political elections or cultural shifts. Uh, we can keep up to date with latest global events or national controversies. But how many of us are up to date with the spiritual realities happening in the world today, especially in our own lives? How many of us see clearly how we should be responding to Jesus Christ? How many of us see clearly what our lives day in and day out are saying about Christ's having come and calling us to submit to him? For the Israelites, Jesus is saying that they should acknowledge the times. He's saying they should acknowledge the Messiah is here. They should see his coming, his presence. Judgment for sin is now at hand. Well, what should they have done? How should they have interpreted Jesus' arrival? That's where we see number three, they should settle with God. Number three, settle with God. This is the call of Jesus to make peace, not first with the world, uh, no, but with God. You see, in, in the world, there will be these divisions caused in a, in a, in a fall, foreign, uh, fallen land. But we are to make peace with God, the creator and judge of the world. Jesus gives the crowds a story to capture what this looks like if they were to interpret rightly the present times. Look at the illustration he gives in verse 57. He says, Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser but before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So verse 57, again, emphasizes they're not judging rightly. They weren't interpreting the present times correctly or their sin correctly. And here's the analogy he gives them to just to grasp the significance of this moment. Jesus says this moment, it's like a lawsuit. So he's not meaning to teach us here about earthly lawsuits and how we should handle it. Uh, out in the world today when we are sued. No, he's trying to give us an illustration. He's trying to give us an analogy here to understand. I wonder perhaps if any of you have had the unpleasant experience of being served court papers uh, in a court of law. The accuser comes to you, the defendant, and, and they want to make a case for why you're guilty. Now, if you were actually guilty, the pro and if the prosecution's case is particularly overwhelming, I mean, they've got evidence, and evidence against you. It's just plentiful and clear. Well, what is a good lawyer going to recommend that you do before going to trial? 
He's going to recommend that you would, in a civil case, try to settle the case. Or in a criminal case, try to take a plea deal. Especially if the plea deal is significantly less than the, the penalties that will be held against you in light of all the evidence of what you've done as you go into that lawsuit. Well, Jesus here, he's playing the part of an advising lawyer. And he's saying to the people, before they come before God, take the plea deal. Avoid the penalties of this going to trial. You've got a problem. All the evidence is stacked against you. you you've got this sin problem that you know full well. And that the magistrate or the judge in this illustration, well, it's God, the judge of the universe. And Jesus is telling the Israelites, you have a chance. You're still on the way. You've got an opportunity to not pay what you fully deserve. You have an opportunity to come forward and, and admit your guilt. Don't let the accuser, the prosecutor, just trot out all of the evidence in front of the judge. You take it yourself. Pursue a plea deal. Friends, how true this analogy is for us as well, is it not? How should we live in light of the judgment our sin deserves? Well, we should settle with God now. The day for salvation is now, not later. Like we saw last week, a time will come when it will be too late for you to change your course. Jesus says, settle on the way, verse 58. So if you're a skeptic uh, or a visitor here today, you need to think about this passage. Jesus Christ has come to earth and he's died on our behalf. On the cross, he took the, the punishment, he took that, the sentence of our guilt that, that we deserve. Colossians uses uh, similar language, uh, legal language, when it says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. You see, Jesus died and then rose from the grave, and he invites us to trust his work by faith. But this will only apply to our court documents if we settle the case now, if we trust him by faith in this life. This is what honors him. It honors him when we take this plea deal and acknowledge that what he is saying about us, what, what he sees of our sin is true evidence. But if we refuse, uh, the, the sentence is coming. Uh, Christian friends, let me just encourage you. Let me just pause here. Think about with me, how should this shape your evangelism. I mean, if, if you believe this scenario that Jesus is, is using to, to illustrate this truth, how should this shape the way you think about talking to the lost around you? Perhaps your, your families or your, your neighbors or the people in your workplace. Jesus is saying, we're still on our way before the judge. It's not too late for anyone we meet to still settle their accounts now and be forgiven. But, look at verse 40, 59. He says, if they don't, I tell you, you will never get out. 
until you have paid the very last penny. penny. You see, this, this language is meant to emphasize that the full payment of sin is required before God. Uh, our friends uh, don't, your, your coworkers, your, your neighbors, they don't need to just be a generally good person and hope that that would be enough. Oh no, the, 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 the sin that we have all incurred against God needs to be fully paid to, to every last penny. An offense against an eternal God requires an eternal payment. So either Christ will deal with this in his eternal holiness, or we will be called account in eternal judgment. These are the only two options for sinning against this great God. What a sober reality for us Christians to think about. I'm, I'm just wondering, Christian friends, does this shape the way that you're having conversations with those around you who aren't yet believers? I'm not saying that you should be brash or harsh. I'm saying that there should be a winsome urgency to the way that you talk about those who don't look to Christ. You should realize that sin must be covered. If you pursue your neighbors, do you pursue your coworkers? Do you pursue new visitors at this church? Do it gently and in love. But do you pursue others with this view of eternal realities at hand? May our church grow in believing this. Uh, maybe some there, or maybe some of you are listening to this and feel like paying the very last penalty was uh, ungracious of God or ungracious of Jesus uh, to, to talk about, the, paying the very last penny. Maybe it seems somewhat harsh or unfair. Maybe really only bad sinners, those really bad guys, they should be the ones that are required this. You know, the, the terrorists our day or the Nazis or uh, Nero in their day. Maybe they should be the ones that are made to perish. Well, Jesus next explains that this problem isn't God's fairness. That's not the problem at hand. The problem is our estimation of our sin. How should we live in light of the judgment our sin deserves? Number four, Jesus says next, weigh sin rightly. Weigh sin rightly. Listen to how Jesus corrects our thinking. Verse, chapter 13, verse 1. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise so Jesus grabs two present-day tragedies for the crowd that he was speaking to, and he uses them as examples. Pilate killing these Galileans in a grotesque way, and then this, this tower falling and, and killing 18 people suddenly. Two tragedies. Now, now, this surely would have been provocative of Jesus to grab these headlines. 
They represented seemingly innocent victims being killed. I mean, this would be like a, a preacher uh, grabbing a story of victims of a school shooting, this brutal killing. Or if I were to use an illustration of the, uh, the Miami high-rise tower collapse. You, you all remember this. Uh, two years ago, Surfside, Miami, 1.22 a.m. in the morning, an entire condominium just collapsed, and 98 people were, were just killed overnight in their sleep. A, pr a provocative illustration Jesus grabs here. And he, he points to this, he points to this suffering, and he asks a question. He says, were these victims comparatively worse sinners than us? Should we make sense of these tragedies and others like it in order for God to not be unfair by maybe thinking that those people somehow deserve to die in that condominium? They somehow had worse sins that needed to be dealt with, that was going on in their lives. Jesus says, no, that, that's not clear thinking. You see, Jesus speaks with the honesty of a doctor who's exposing the cancer that needs to be operated on. He's putting our sickness in perspective. He's saying, when you see human suffering, grotesque suffering, senseless suffering, don't think that those who are suffering must be especially deserving. That's not it. Don't think that, that you all have safety from similar tragedy because somehow you have good merit before God. No. Jesus says when you see human suffering in this world, let your mind wonder why it isn't you. Why is it not us? Instead, think, why has God let us live in our rebellion against our Creator for as long as He has? Why has He been just so gracious to us day after day after day, year after year, letting us continue to live, not yet calling us to account for the way that we have treated our God? To borrow from R.C. Sproul, he, he says, why didn't all of us immediately come under judgment the moment we committed treason against this God? God could have stopped the created order the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against him and been perfectly just. Perfectly righteous to say, that's it. I've had enough. That would have been fair. That would have been holy of this God. No, Jesus says, weigh your sin rightly, your sin, and see suffering, and let it lead you to repent, to turn from that sin. Turn from your sin, or you will likewise perish. That's the evidence that you have true faith, is that you are one who is just constantly turning from sin, because you weigh it heavily as an offense against God, that deserves judgment on all of us. You know, uh, one divine purpose for human suffering is to be a sober reminder of what each one of us deserves eternally. Let me say that again. Make sure you get that. As you look 
and you just watch the news or you see evil around you and you're wondering how how is this how is this problem of evil here well one divine purpose for why God allows human suffering in the evil forms he allows it he is not ignorant to what just happened in Israel and what's happening in Palestine it's not a surprise to him one reason he allows human suffering with such evilness is to be to us a sober reminder of what every single one of us deserves eternally before him. So Jesus says, weigh your sin rightly. Repent. For we all likewise deserve this. But God has been so patient with us, has he not? This patience is where Christ ends this section. Look at chapter 13, verse 6. We read there, he told this parable. A, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should, I, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Jesus' advice, number five, don't presume on God's patience. In this illustration, the fig tree represents the people of Israel. God had planted his people in his vineyard. They showed no fruit of faith. So like a good landowner, God will not preserve a fruitless tree. But the vine dresser intercedes, and he, he recommends patience. To dig around the tree and, and to put a manure w w would be to give every opportunity for this tree to grow. Well, Israel would be given every opportunity, but they would still not take it. You see, not long from now, these same crowds would gather and they would crucify the man that is teaching them right now. Church, Paul later gives us, tells us that the lesson of God's patience with Israel is meant to instruct us as well. We are to see his patience and learn not to presume upon it. Peace with God is offered, but it, it will not be offered forever. Now is the time when the king is patient. Now is the time when the judge will accept a plea deal. Now is the time where the vine dresser will give an opportunity. He's waiting to see who will get right with him. And there is a time where it will be too late. Uh, five truths, five ways that we can live in light of the fact that Jesus will bring fire to the earth. Expect division, acknowledge the times, settle with God, acknowledge, uh, weigh sin rightly, and uh, don't presume on God's mercy. Beneath each of these lessons, though, there is a tension that is being introduced that must be resolved. I wonder if you saw it as we read. How can God be a perfect judge who burns with wrath against sin and yet still be patient? How can this warning of a judgment with fire uh, fit his nature of a, of a loving patience? How can God be both just and merciful 
How can he be both a righteous judge and a judge that offers a plea deal? The, the tension is throughout the passage. I, I wonder if you saw it. Look at this last one. How can the vine dresser advocate? How can the vine dresser mediate on behalf of a fruitless fig tree? Three years have already passed. Its time was well overdue. Or how can Jesus give a chance to repent, unlike those whom the tower had fallen upon? What would buy us this time for repentance? What would give us that offer? Or even moving backwards up in the text, uh, how could there even be a plea deal in this court case? What is the plea deal? Who's this lawyer on the scene that's telling us to, to settle with the judge so we don't have to pay every last penny? There's this tension just, just being pulled at throughout the narrative. And there's this glorious undercurrent of mercy. It's a current that's flowing from the beginning of the passage. Look back with me to verse 49. There we read how Jesus introduced this judgment. He said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Uh, so apparently, Jesus is eager to kindle the fire that he's come to set. Isn't that strange? If fire is judgment, how can he say, were that it were already started? Were that it was going right now? now certainly the judgment that he's thinking of is in part the righteous response of God against the sinful world. But, get this, this is not the first judgment he's thinking of. That, that's not what's first coming to his mind. It's not the, the reflex of our Savior. Judge them. I wish we, we could start with judging them. What, what Jesus thinks of in this passage, what he's naturally prone to, well, we see it in the text. Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and were that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What could he be talking about? We see these words, until it is accomplished. And us Lucan scholars here remember a year ago, starting in Luke 1.1, where we read the very first book of this, verse of this book. Luke is writing these things to tell us what has been accomplished through this person of Jesus Christ. And if you remember that sermon, I pointed out that Luke uses this phrase several times to talk about the fulfillment of the whole plan of salvation that's culminating here. So then what is this baffling language? For the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent Son of God to say, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Jesus is talking about himself. In the Old Testament, the, the imagery of being covered with a flood many times over represents being consumed by God's judgment. The image of baptism here is the image of going under the waters of divine judgment, which is, by the way, one of the reasons when we baptize here, you'll often hear me say, in the likeness of his death, 
and in the likeness of his resurrection. We're symbolizing dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. Jesus here is looking to his death. And he is saying he is in great distress until he absorbs that judgment. He's looking to that death that's coming and he's in distress. So just an aside here, just a free extra aside for anyone who's ever just been caught in fear of the possibility of hell. Jesus is looking forward and he here is distressed about more than just the possibility of hell. He's distressed about facing hell itself. And do you see what he's saying? Just reflect on this glorious truth. Reflect on what this means as we close. In one of the fiercest passages on judgment that Jesus gives, he opens it by saying, I'm going first. So that you don't have to. I have come to cast a fire on the earth, and I will have that fire cast on me first, so that it doesn't have to land on you. I have come to divide father against son. I'm going to ask the same of you. And I will be the first son to be cast out. I will be the son that cries to his father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I have come to interpret a scorching heat that comes, and that heat will fall on me first. I have come, I've come to offer a plea deal, and this is how I'll do it. I will be the one that will be dragged before the judge and handed over to the officer, and I will be the one who pays every last penny. I have a cup of God's wrath to drink, and I will drink it dry. I've come to bring peace on the earth, and the road to your peace is a road through the cross, which will mean anything but peace for me. Christians here today, the, the, the chief application of these passages on, worship, on judgment is to stand in worship of the one who was victorious over judgment by passing through judgment. Worship him. For while our sin deserves such a severe response, Jesus had the fire of God's wrath cast on himself. The tension of judgment and mercy, the tension that this chapter brings to the forefront is of peace and utter lack of peace. And it's resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, Jesus will either be the most severe judge that you could possibly fathom, or he will be the most perfect substitute beyond what you could possibly understand. And you will spend eternity trying to understand it. He will have it no other way. Will you not worship this king today? Pray with me. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you cannot overlook evil. That you cannot brush it aside. That your, 
your perfect goodness that is infinite, your perfect holiness that is unending, that, that, that it must deal with sin. And we glory that on that cross, you absorb the wrath of God in our place. Jesus, you are victorious. And we praise you. We praise you for your work on our behalf. We pray this in your name. Amen.